I now remember something I was going to do before Sunday school, and that is uh, find the next person that I'm going to share a story and not give them credit for. I forgot to look this woman's name up, but uh, uh, maybe she'll forgive me. I don't know her anyway. Uh, This summer, you might remember, early this summer, the United States carried out some airstrikes against Syria, if you remember that, and and a a woman whose, whose name I forgot to look back up. She shared this story. She was traveling, an American woman. She was in an airport about that time and just sitting, kind of waiting on a flight. Uh, there was a group of guys traveling together uh, near her and, and they were, uh, the guys were visiting and one of the men that this, the subject of this airstrikes came up and one of the men said, yeah, they, they launched a bunch of Tomahawk missiles off of an aircraft carrier all the way into Syria and hit, you know, right, whatever they were supposed to Hit. Well, this woman decided to correct this guy, and she said, I, you know, they don't, they don't fire Tomahawk missiles off of an aircraft carrier. Those come off of things like submarines and destroyers and cruisers. It's, a, it's an aircraft carrier group, though, and this man kind of uh, took about five minutes to correct her because he has a friend in the Navy, and he was really sure what, of what he was talking about, and it was very cordial and friendly. And um, she let it go, and they, she stayed in the conversation, though. And one of the men asked her what she was traveling for. She just said, I'm traveling for work. And then one of the other guys said, well, so what do you do? And she said, I'm a Tomahawk fire controlman for the United States Navy. <laughs> I, I fire Tomahawk missiles for a living. Uh, that had to feel pretty good, I would think. Anytime you can let a know-it-all know they don't know it all, uh, you know, it's always a good day. Uh, I wonder sometimes how often God maybe feels a little bit like that toward us when God, who actually does know it all, hears us talking about him or his plans or what he's doing or who knows what, and he just wants to say, oh, you should stop. You know, you're embarrassing yourself. Well, last week we started 1 Samuel chapter 4, which is, has to be one of those times. Because the nation of Israel came up with a really boneheaded plan. They got whipped in a battle against their enemies. Uh, the Philistines, the nation of Philistia. And then someone got the bright idea that if they went in the tabernacle into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, and got this little box called the Ark of the Covenant, that God is said to have been um, enthroned above. I thought, well, if we bring that out here, then God will sort of be forced to make us win. They decided to to treat the Ark of the Covenant like it was a good luck charm, like it was a horseshoe, like it was a rabbit's foot, like it was a four-leaf clover, like it was that tear-stained picture of Tom Osborne that you hold while the Huskers are playing. Worked last night, didn't it? Um. See, the purpose of the Ark of the Covenant was not to be a good luck charm. It was not to be a weapon of mass destruction. I spent a lot of our sermon time 
last week talking about the purpose of the Ark of the Covenant. And I, I'm not going to rehash all of that. I, it's easy to find our, our messages listened to last week's if you want to know more about the Ark. But the Ark played a central role in teaching Israel that God wants to be with people. But sin separates people from God. And God only allows people to be back with Him in spite of their sin through the means that God allows. That's what the ark was for, to teach that. It's not to be Israel's box-o-magic. It was to teach this truth. You know, we can never set the terms of our relationship with God. Do you know that? We, we can never rightly say, you know, I, I understand God this way. Like, I follow a God like this. This is the way I, you know, think of my pursuit of God. We can never think or say things like, you know, God, if you do this, then I will do that. Or God, since I have done A and B and C pretty good lately, then I should expect you to do. We can't set the terms of our relationship with God. God sets the terms of the relationship. The ark was supposed to teach that. So, so I imagine God in his heavenly throne Not that he was surprised, mind you, but as he sees Israel marching out to battle with the Ark of the Covenant, I just imagine him thinking, oh, don't do this. This is not how any of this works. And this is going to end very badly. So today we're going to We're going to read the rest of the story. We're going to read the whole story, but we're going to study through the rest of the story to see how God really does work. It's a good picture of that. And when we understand how God works, at least the way he shows us today, we can learn something I think that's very important for us. This is 1 Samuel chapter 4. It'll be on the screen. The page number is listed in the bulletin. I forget it, 285 or something. So 1 Samuel chapter 4, and we're going to read the whole story. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped in Aphek. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the people came into the camp, The elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who sits above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Verse 5, as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded. When the Philistines 
uh, heard the noise, the shout, they said, what does this noise, this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. And here's their pep talk to one another, verse 9. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated again. And every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and and dust on his head. He was mourning. And when he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, eagerly watching, because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. So the man came to tell it in the city, and all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the noise of the commotion mean? Then the man, that runner, came hurriedly and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. Probably he had really bad cataracts and that you could see. The man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And Eli said, how did things go, my son? And the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there's also been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been taken. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off his seat backwards beside the gate to the city, and his neck was broken, and he died, for he was old and heavy. Thus, Eli judged Israel 40 years, verse 19. Now, Eli's daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was pregnant and about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about that time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God was taken, and because of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God was taken. There's our passage, kind of a long passage. We'll take it in chunks. We, we studied the first three verses last week, so we're going to start in verses 4 through 8, where we're reminded that there is a very big difference between knowing God and just knowing some stuff about God. We see this in the Philistines. We can tell in verses 4 through 8, the Philistines knew some stuff about Yahweh the God of Israel. They knew enough that that he was scary. They knew when Israel brings the Ark of the Covenant uh, and starts shouting and celebrating, they're like, whoa, they've never done this before. 
They know that in Israel's ancient past, 400 years in the past, this God has done some amazing things to protect Israel from Israel's enemies. But there's a big difference between knowing some stuff about God and knowing God. They get plenty of stuff wrong, too. The polytheists that they are, they assume Israel has many gods. That's why they say, uh, they talk about the gods of Israel. They're wrong there. Israel only has one God. The whole earth only has one God, actually. They also get some details wrong about the plagues. They say, you know, that these gods of Israel are the ones that brought Egypt to Egypt's knees. That's the story of the Exodus. It's 400 years prior to this story. They, uh, Egypt, that is, was the most powerful nation on earth, and, and God, the God of Israel, brought Egypt to its knees. But that didn't happen in the wilderness like the Philistines say. It happened on Israel's home turf, excuse me, on Egypt's home turf back in Egypt. So they know some stuff about God, but they don't know God. And they're not the only ones that are the example of this in this passage, because Israel is not painted in any better of a picture. Israel is being led at this point by two priests, Hophni and Phinehas. They're the ones that, that lead the Ark of the Covenant out to the battlefield. And we've already been told about these two clowns. Now the sons of Eli, this is in chapter 2, were worthless men. Just a word that means scoundrels. Belial is the, the Hebrew word. They're scoundrels. They did not know the Lord. They knew plenty of stuff about God. But there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. These two had such a small view of God, they thought they could manipulate God to get him to do what they wanted to do. I'm not sure anyone who, who thinks that way about God actually knows the God they're dealing with. I would assume that since you've come to a church today, even if you were just drug here by someone you wanted to, to make happy, I would assume you at least believe in God. Like you know there is a God. I want you to know believing in God and knowing that God in a way where you're redeemed by him, you're, you're okay in your relationship with him, those are not the same things. God has only allowed himself to be accessible in one way. And that seems very exclusive, mainly because it is. More on that next week if that seems a little offensive to you. Come back, we'll talk more about that. But, but God has allowed himself to be known through the person of Jesus Christ and through his, his sacrifice. For us, now 3,000 years later from this story, we know that is the way God has allowed himself to be accessed. Do you know Jesus? Do you know what he did for you? 
Have you decided that that is going to be your hope? What he did, not what you do. Have you decided to, to become his disciple, his follower, that there's nothing better? See, that's how we get to know God. The way he's allowed himself to be known. And then one reason we come here to learn more from this book is because you can't know someone you don't know anything about. And knowing stuff about God doesn't mean you know God. But if you want to know God, you've got to learn some stuff about him. You want to know what he's like. And the more we get to know about God, the more we learn we can trust God when things are scary, when things are difficult, when things aren't how we would like them. But knowing stuff about God and knowing God are different things. We see that in this story. Now, the second chunk in this story is a story about the death of the high priest of Israel, a man named Eli. We've seen him a lot in this book thus far. This will be our last time with Eli. He is, he's very old by this point. He's 98 years old. He's brought blind for all practical purposes. And Eli is sitting at, he's called the judge of Israel. He's sitting in the gate of the city of Shiloh where the judge would sit, waiting to hear what goes on in this battle. And when the runner comes, he gives Eli three pieces of very bad news. There's been a great slaughter on the battlefield and we got whipped. Second, both of your sons are dead, he gets told. Hophni and Phinehas, they're, they're both dead. And third, the, the Ark of the Covenant has been taken by the Philistines. And our author makes very, very clear which piece of news is the piece of news which literally kills Eli. It's not the slaughter of the army. It's not even the death of his two sons. It's the bit about the Ark of the Covenant. He has some sort of severe health event. I don't know if this guy has a heart attack, has a stroke, or just a shock, but he falls over, he breaks his neck, and he dies. And the reason that is the piece of news that kills him is, I think, for a few reasons. One, it's the only part of that news that, that I don't think Eli was anticipating already. Eli's been told twice in this book already, by God by spokesmen for God that both of your sons are going to die on the same day. He was told that once, and then he was told by Samuel, God still means that it's still going to happen. And he was told he's going to live long enough to, to, to see it, to be around for it. And he's 98 years old. He knows it's not going to be much longer. And both of his sons are out in battle, And I think Eli knows enough to know that's not what the Ark of the Covenant's for. And in my mind's eye, I picture Eli sitting at the gate, assuming they're going to lose, assuming his sons are going to die, and just hoping the Ark comes back in one piece. And it doesn't. 
And very suddenly, Eli, Eli knows. He knows the ark is the symbol of God's closeness to his people. And now someone else has it. And Eli knows very suddenly he has just become the most disgraced high priest in the history of the nation. Because the Ark of the Covenant got lost on his watch. It was misused and taken by pagans on his watch. And then the last section of this passage, Eli's is not the only death we read of today, or the last, not the last death we read of. His daughter-in-law dies at the end of this passage. Now, (laughs) full disclosure, I forgot this was in the Bible when I studied this passage. I forgot this passage was there. And when I'm reading this through before I start writing sermons on this book, I get to this passage and my reaction is, oh yeah, this clown had a wife. I feel so terrible for this woman. Like you married that guy. That's, these are real people with real events. And it makes, so when my mind starts wondering or wandering, or both, I guess, uh, did she know about all the other women at the tabernacle? Like in chapter one, we learned what kind of guy this guy was, and it wasn't a good guy. Did she wonder where all of the extra meat around their table came from? Or did she know everyone else in Israel knew these things? By the way, there's a little hint that Eli knew too. He said he was 98 years old. He fell over and he was also heavy, it said. Um, That's not a detail that's usually offered in the scriptures and that Where do you think his extra calories came from? My guess is the meat his sons stole from worshipers that we learned about in chapter 1. So Phineas's wife uh, is very pregnant. She was about to give birth. She gets this news. Her father-in-law is dead. Her husband is dead. The Ark of the Covenant is gone. Um, Things are in very bad shape. And and it pushes her into labor, which is not a a stretch by any any means. Um, Side story. You ever watch the news about a plane crash and they always say, they might say a hundred and some odd people were killed on board. Identities of the victims Uh, have not been released until the next of kin have been notified. You've heard that, right? Do you know Buddy Holly is the reason for that? You remember Buddy Holly? Rock and roll legend Buddy Holly died in a plane crash. His wife, Peggy Sue herself, pretty, 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 pretty Peggy Sue, for those of you who are old enough to know that song, that wasn't her real name, but she was pregnant with the couple's first child. And guess how she found out about Buddy Holly's death? On the news. And she miscarried because of the shock and the trauma. And that's why the FAA passed that rule. And we still have it, still have it today. So anyway, she's not the first, uh, Peggy Sue was not the first woman to be pushed into labor from shock, from trauma. Because it happened to Phineas's wife. And 
She dies in, in childbirth, which probably may or may not have been related to the trauma. That happened all the time uh, back then, unfortunately. Uh, some women, while she's, uh, after she's delivered, her son tried to calm her down by saying, you don't have to worry, you've had a son. Um, she's very suddenly a widow. As we talked about in Hannah's story in chapter 1, Heirs, especially sons, that was the nation's social security system. He was going to have inheritance. He, by law, was legally required to take care of his mama. So that's what these women are saying. Um, but she makes clear that's not, that's not what grieves me. Maybe she did know what kind of guy she was married to, and she wasn't terrible sorry to... See him go, I don't know. But here's what she says. She says, I'm going to name this son Ichabod. There's not a lot of guys named Ichabod, right? There's only one you've ever heard of. What was his name? Ichabod Crane, right? Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Uh, the glory of a man is the head. You ever hear that? Ichabod Crane got his head uh, uh, removed, Right? That's, that's where this, that his name comes from. Ichabod is a word that means something like no glory or maybe where is the glory. She says, I'm going to name him Ichabod, no glory, because the glory of the Lord departed from Israel because the ark of, the God, the ark of God was taken. And thus ends another really awful story in the book of 1 Samuel, of which there are many. And, and what are you and I, but what are you and I supposed to learn from this story? Well, I want you to, to picture, to imagine, what if, what if there were 24-hour news shows in Israel in this day? What if there were evening news talking head commentary shows in Israel during this day? How do, how do these events that we just read through, how do they play out nationally? The, the headlines write themselves, right? The glory is gone. Was God so weak? Is our God so weak he couldn't even defend his own throne? Has God abandoned us? Are we doomed as a nation? Here's the situation in Israel. The army just got routed. That's bad. Uh, the high priest and both of his sons are dead. The Ark of the Covenant is in pagan hands. There's, there's plenty of evidence to suggest, by the way, though we don't read it in here, that the Philistines went in and destroyed uh, Shiloh, where the tabernacle was, and probably the tabernacle itself. It's an argument from silence, but as we move forward, a spoiler alert, if you don't want to hear this part about this story, plug your ears right now. But Israel's going to get the Ark of the Covenant back. 
We're never going to read of it going back to Shiloh. Samuel's never going to be in Shiloh. The tabernacle's never going to be in Shiloh, probably because there's no longer a Shiloh. Things are bad, bad, bad in Israel. But this story is a great example of the providence of God. Of God being in control when, when nobody knows God's in control. This is a great example of, to use an old saying, the, the characters in this story are playing checkers and God is playing chess. See, here's what I mean. The, the characters in this story, especially Hophni and Phinehas, Israel's being led by Hophni and Phinehas and Israel's not being led by Eli, who's too passive. But they thought they could manipulate God to get God to do what they wanted, right? The whole time, God is letting them make their own independent decisions, even awful, irreverent, terrible decisions, and God is using their decisions to get done what God wants done. What happened in this story is exactly what God wanted to happen. You know how we know? Because God told us ahead of time. God told us in chapter 2 he had already decided to kill these two clowns. He'd already told Eli, both your sons are going to die on the same day. See, it's really easy for people in Israel to think, God has left us. No, he hasn't. God is ridding the priesthood of the family the priesthood needs rid of. This is a great example of the providence of God. You know what the providence of God is? It's related to his sovereignty, but it's different. Uh, my favorite definition of the providence of God comes from J. Vernon McGee. Does anyone know J. Vernon McGee? He said this, the providence of God is, is the means by which God directs all things both animate things and inanimate things, seen things and unseen things, good things and evil things. God directs all those things toward a worthy purpose, which means his will must finally prevail. Here's my best stab at describing the providence of God. Sometimes God works overtly where everyone can tell it's God doing it. That's not the providence of God. Like when God parted the Red Sea, Nobody walked through on dry ground going, I wonder if God's real. Right? There weren't any atheists walking along the dry ground of the Red Sea because God had shown up in a, in a mighty, powerful, overt way. So the providence of God is when God works through the regular, mundane, everyday things. Nobody can even tell that God exists. Only exactly what God wants to happen is happening. That's what was going on in this story. And I, and I want to end by talking about Phineas's wife again. Because even though she's a, boy, she's a very, it's easy to pity her. Like, and I wonder, is she a, 
Is she really concerned about God and she didn't like the way her husband was or was she in on the whole thing all along? I have no way of knowing, but here's what I know. When she says the glory of God has left Israel because the ark has been taken, she is dead wrong. She's dead wrong. What I would have wanted to ask her is something like this. Oh, now you're concerned about the glory of God? Now? Like, if if the ark of God being mistreated or being in pagan hands was enough to chase away the glory of God, that would have happened a long time ago. Because there's been nothing that glorified God going on in that tabernacle during the whole career of the family she married into. The whole thing was a wreck. But the glory of God is doing just fine, thank you. Here's something we need to know from this story. The God of the universe is going to glorify himself through every single person who lives. God is going to glorify himself through your life. That is not a question. You know, God will be glorified in sending some people to hell forever and ever and ever. You know that? What's it mean to glorify, for God to glorify himself? Sometimes we say magnify. When God magnifies or glorifies himself, he doesn't make himself look bigger or better than he actually is. That's what we want to do when we try to glorify ourselves or magnify ourselves. God just lets people know what he's actually like. And God is just. And God is holy. And God doesn't lie. And he means what he says and he keeps every promise. And it is a good thing that God is just and you want God to be just. You do. If it seems like I don't want God to be just, I don't want God to send people to hell, you want God to punish sin. You do. Just God forbid, wait until it is your child who is filling the terrible thing that's unspeakable that I don't even want to say. Let it be your spouse who is attacked or beaten or raped or murdered or whatever. Do you know what you will want then? You will want to see a God of vengeance and wrath and justice. And you will be right to feel that way. And when God sends people to hell, all he will be doing is showing people who he really is, which is a God who promises that vengeance will be his and he will repay. But there are others that God will glorify himself, magnify himself by showing himself to be forgiving and merciful. There will be some who, though they deserve to be cast into that very same hell, will be rescued from that faith from that fate, not because they're any better than the folks in hell, but because he was.
And because Jesus died for, the, for that hell these folks deserved. The question is not, will God be glorified in your life? The question is only, how? The question I need to answer for my life, for my today and my tomorrow, is how will God be glorified in my life today? Like, through me or to me, because of me or in spite of me, through me or against me. See, God was showing himself to Israel as a just God and a God who will purify his people. That's what we need to answer. What we need to answer when it comes to the glory of God is not, is it there? The glory of God is doing just fine. It hasn't gone anywhere. It's as full and as brilliant as it ever was. The question we need to ask ourselves is, who do I want to see glorified? Him or me? That's the only thing wrong in Israel. Those priests that got so far gone had just decided at some point, you know, I don't think I want to go in for all this God stuff and see him. What about me? I want to have the fun. I want to have the sex. I want to have more meat. I want to have all that stuff. Why do I need to spend all my time glorifying him when I can glorify me? They may not have said it that overt, but that was the choice they were making. But the question is never, will God be glorified in my life? It's only how. We're going to have communion now, and as we do, I want to give you a second to pack your, 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 your stuff up. So go ahead. That's all right. Go ahead. Get that stuff done. Because we got some business to do as we do this. Because even as I talk through that, you might be thinking, but, but, but Matt, like if I want to go all in on this glorifying God thing, like I'm not sure I'm going to like what's left of my life. That sounds really, really hard. You know what it looks like? You know what it can look like? You know what it might look like? For someone to decide, Father, I want you to glorify your name. It can look like that. So there's only one person on earth who ever lived who could ever say this, glorify me. His name was Jesus. In the Gospel of John, the very end of his life, the last night he lived. We read this. Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. 
that your son may also glorify you. I'll, I'll change the pronouns here just for clarity. Jesus prayed, you have given me authority over all flesh that I should give eternal life to as many as you have given me. And this is eternal life that they may know you and Jesus, the Christ whom you've sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, oh Father, glorify me together with you with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Here's why that's instructive for us today. Even if we want, it's so tricky we think, I can glorify me and glorify God at the same time. But if we do, like that meets at the cross. Jesus taught, if you want to be a big deal, you got to be the, the lowest. If you want to be the greatest, you got to be the least. If you want to be a master, you got to be a servant. It's all upside down. When Jesus got through with all the work he had, had been given to do, it still just boiled down to this. I've got one more thing left to do, Father. Glorify your name. That is the best and the highest goal that we can achieve in this life to honestly say, I want to see you glorified. And if I have to hurt that you might be glorified and glorify your name. The throne of glory in his earthly ministry of Jesus Christ was a bloody, terrible cross. That's how he glorified the Father. And he said, if that's what you have for me, I'm here for it. Let's do this. So now just as we close, I'm just going to ask you to bow, bow your heads and close your eyes. Paul said we're supposed to examine ourselves before this meal. So I just want to give you a few minutes of quiet here just to ask yourself this question. Who do I want to see glorified in my life? Who have I been working to make much of in my life? And maybe this morning you're ready to go in a different direction. Maybe this morning as you examine yourself before we pass the symbols of how Jesus was glorified. Maybe this morning is when you are ready to say to the Father, glorify your name. I want to see you glorified in me. I know you will glorify yourself, but I don't want it to be through your discipline. I don't want it to be because you discipline those you love. I don't want it to be because you cast me away from you one day. I want to cling to you. 
like a, like a barnacle, Lord, on the whole of your ship where you are going, that I might see you glorified in me. Father, you know the hearts of everyone here. You know how we seek to see ourselves glorified, and we know that will come at the expense of how we glorify you. You will be glorified in us, but God, you give us the opportunity that we can glorify you in our lives. And as we commune with you this morning, Lord, as we remember what it sometimes looks like and what it sometimes costs to glorify God in a life, I pray you would set our hearts toward the path which leads to your glory in our lives. As the guys come forward to to pass the bread, Lord, and as we either meditate on this or, or sing this, God, just pray you would make us ready to mean these words. Glorify your name in my life, Lord. Be glorified. And we thank you for glorifying yourself in the cross that we remember now in Jesus' name. Amen.